Could I ask you to take your Bibles and to turn, please, to Revelation chapter 17. Uh, Revelation chapter 17. We're going to be uh, looking at this portion of God's Word together. So let's read Revelation chapter 17, uh, verses 1 to 18. And, uh, and then we'll come and look at this together. Thanks, Gavin. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name, a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and to go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and it is not and it is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast, that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seventh, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Well, this is also God's word. <laughs> um, and uh, it is just as much as every other portion of God's word. And so uh, let's just pray briefly as we commit our time in this passage uh, to God this morning. Father, as we come to another very difficult portion uh, of your word, as we work our way through the book of Revelation, 
Uh, we pray that you would help us now uh, to see that which you intended uh, the early Christians to whom John wrote this letter to understand not only of the day and age in which they were living, but that day that is coming, that great day when the Lord Jesus Christ will return and how to live in this world in the light of that day. And so as we come to your word now, we pray that we too would learn all that you would have us to learn from this portion this morning. Won't you help me uh, to speak clearly from what is a very uh, complicated passage of Scripture? And won't you help our hearts to grasp and understand your word this morning? For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was a, a television series. Uh, it was a couple of years back, probably about 10 or 12 years ago. It took the world by storm. Uh, it was aired simultaneously in the United States and the UK when we were living there at the time. And it was called Flash Forward. Basically, the storyline goes like this. The, the whole world blacks out for 2 minutes and 37 seconds, during which time everyone on the, the planet saw a clear vision of their own future, exactly what they would, do, would be doing on a specific day six months in the future. And so the storyline then tracks the, the frantic search that people have for answers. Everyone's questions regarding their future. Will it come true? Can I change what I saw? What does it mean if I never had a flash forward? So this glimpse into the future results in three very different responses from all the various people in the story. Some people deny that what they saw or did not see has got any relevance to life. It was just a, a random dream. It was just a blackout. <clears throat> Excuse me. It has no significance and so they just carry on their life in denial. Others, however, vehemently opposed what they saw or did not see in their flash forward. They refused to believe that what they saw will come true. And so they become obsessed to do whatever they can in the time that they have left to change the outcome. And then others are totally embracing of their vision. They cannot wait to reach that point in their future where they saw themselves in a very favorable situation. Well, we discovered the show recently again as a family and as we've been watching it with the kids, um, I've kept on being reminded about the striking similarity with what we have been studying in the book of Revelation especially these last few chapters as we are given this very vivid flash forward into the future which lies ahead for every single one of us. Some of you, as you've come in and out of church over the last few months as we've been working our way through Revelation, you are treating these visions of your future with the same skepticism and denial as some in this TV show. And instead of seeing what God is trying to show you about the future, you just carry on living your life in denial of these truths which await you. Others of you don't like what these visions in Revelation reveal about your future because they have perhaps exposed you to be someone who is not sealed by the Lamb. John's vision has revealed that you carry the mark of the beast, and you worship his image in this world, 
And yet despite the, the terrible realities of what awaits you when Jesus returns, you remain vehemently opposed to, to all that God is calling you to do in repentance, hoping that somehow you will avoid this day of reckoning uh, which is coming. And then hopefully, and I trust this is true for the majority who are here this morning, you have been greatly helped and encouraged to see that although the journey to this great and awesome day of the Lord, yes, it's, it's most likely going to be filled with, with trials, with persecution, with trouble, despite the fact that the dragon and his beasts continue to make war against Jesus and war against his church, you have seen the end. You've seen that the Lamb wins, and so do we whose names are written in his eternal book of life. And so for us who are in Christ Jesus today, this flash forward of John in the book of Revelation is something which profoundly should affect every single day of our lives in the present because we've been given this glorious picture of our eternal reality. Now, obviously, the massive difference between a, a TV series and the book of Revelation is that the one is fiction uh, and the other is reality. The one is the imagination and the creation of Hollywood. The other is the revelation and the reality of a sovereign God, the one that we've just been singing about and singing to. And so what we are talking about today is meant to wake up the sleepy, those who are in denial. It's meant to trouble and arrest those who are in a state of rebellion. And it's meant to encourage and motivate those who are called and chosen and faithful. So which one are you so far in our series in Revelation? Are you in denial so that you go home every day sleepy to these things? Are you perhaps in rebellion to God and so you go home on Sundays after the word of God has been expounded and you are troubled, perhaps even angry at some of the things that you hear, but you do not repent? Or are you this morning someone who is in Christ so that you go home each Sunday encouraged with hope and anticipation for the future? Well, today's passage is going to produce one of those three responses in, in each of us here today. And so you will know which one you are by the end uh, of this service today. So we begin this morning with the sixth cycle. Uh, last week we did, we began and ended the fifth cycle of visions. Today we begin the sixth cycle in Revelation, which starts in chapter 17, verse 1, and it runs through to chapter 19, verse 21. And we've called this approach to Revelation, I mentioned that at the beginning of the series, progressive parallelism. Now, it sounds technical, but it's really not. What it means is that each of the seven visions on your diagram, and there are some more in the foyer if you've lost yours, each of the seven visions runs parallel to each other as we move our way through the book. But as we consider each of these 
parallel visions, in each one, John reveals something different, something progressive. He reveals more to us of the storyline of history between the first and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's a progressive parallel. We're not just looking at seven visions that are all identical. No, they all overlap, but each one progresses in revealing more and more detail to us about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the central theme in these last two visions, the sixth and the seventh visions, which we're going to be looking at over the next uh, probably two months, is a comparison between two women, between the prostitute called Babylon that we will be introduced to today in chapter 17 to 19, and then another beautiful bride called Jerusalem in chapters 20 to 22. And so what we see as we read the the scriptures is that these two women are symbols for two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. And each city in turn is a symbol for two peoples or two kingdoms. Babylon represents the people of the kingdom of the dragon who is Satan, whereas Jerusalem represents the people of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so let me just show you this big picture before we jump into the details and consider something of this prostitute Babylon today. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the the earth dwellers, that's a, a technical term for the unbelievers, they've become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and ten horns. Now with that image, that vivid image fresh in your mind, turn just a couple of chapters ahead to chapter 21. Turn ahead to chapter 21 and verse 9, and you will see almost an identical account and yet very different. Revelation 21 verse 9, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit, not to a wilderness this time, but to a high mountain. And he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God and its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So I want you to see, before we take a detailed look at the the first woman today, that we We need to understand that the main point of the chapter today is not that we focus in on this prostitute Babylon and get caught up in all kinds of speculations and details. John's purpose in this last section of Revelation is to contrast this woman Babylon with Jerusalem and to show us that Babylon is judged, to show us her downfall so that we will then come in weeks to come with the hearts that will appreciate the beauty and the glory of the other woman, the bride of Jesus Christ, but more importantly, to appreciate the beauty and the glory of the other woman's husband, uh, who is Jesus himself, 
as he is revealed to us in the final chapters of these visions. So let's keep this big picture in mind as we then begin our study in chapter 17 today. So coming back to chapter 17, uh, we, we see that in the account that I read to you, there are two main symbols this morning. One is mostly new, uh, that's this prostitute Babylon, and the, the other one, the other symbol is mostly old, the, the beast from the sea. But what is very interesting in this vision is to see that these two symbols of the woman and the beast are now so intimately related, their cooperation is so close that John describes the woman as a rider on the back of this scarlet beast. So let's do things slightly in reverse here this morning. We're going to start with the familiar symbol uh, to remind ourselves what we already know about the beast and then we'll come back and consider this new symbol, the woman uh, who rides on the back of the beast. And so let's start with mystery number one, uh, which is this powerful beast. And we see him mainly being described in verses 7 to 13. But we are introduced to the beast in verse 3, where John tells us that he saw a woman sitting on this red, this fiery scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it has seven heads and ten horns. Then in verse 7, we read, Now the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. Now just a, a quick word about this word mystery. Uh, when the Bible speaks about a mystery, it does not use it in the way we tend to use the word mystery in English today, like a, a puzzle which we need to try and figure out to solve. No, it specifically refers to a truth, a revelation from God that was previously hidden but has now been brought into the open. We see this many times. Colossians 1, verse 26 and 27, the mystery of the gospel is that the Gentiles have been brought in. We see it in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4 to 6. We see it in Ephesians 5, verse 32, this idea that a, a mystery is something that was always there, it, it was always true, but it was hidden from our understanding, and now it's been revealed. Now this description of the beast uh, in these verses is not new, because it is exactly the same description that we previously were given of this beast back in chapter 13. And, and for the sake of time this morning, we can't go back and read that, but I would encourage you to do that this afternoon, and you will see that the two descriptions align 100%, uh, that the beast in chapter 13 is the same beast that we have here in chapter 17. And we saw in that chapter, chapter 13, that this beast is the, the agent of the dragon, who is Satan. He's his agent at work in the world through the instrument of the state. Governments, authorities, powers, rulers, kings, that's the beast who take their God-given right to reign and rule in justice and righteousness and then they corrupt and they twist and they pervert this power to serve the agenda of the dragon, pursuing the church and pursuing Christians through persecution and oppression. So we see the, the parallel nature of the sixth vision is describing for us the, exactly the same beast again. And here in verse, chapter 17, verse 8, we see the same description from chapter 13, that the dwellers on the earth, the unbelievers, those whose names are not written in the book of life, what do they do? 
Both in chapter 13 and chapter 17, they marvel at this beast. Back in chapter 13, we are told why they marveled at him. Because in chapter 13, verse 3, we are told that this beast looked like one of its heads had been mortally wounded. Remember that? But the wound had healed. And so the world marveled at this beast because it seemed that this beast would not die. It was killed, but it came back to life again. Now look at chapter 17, verse 8. We see the same thing, just explained from a different perspective. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and it is not and it is to come. See the same idea again, the beast was, it was alive, it is not, it, it appears dead, and it is to come, it's going to rise again. And the apparent ability of this beast to rise from the dead or to avoid being killed causes all those whose names are not written in the book of life, all those who bear the mark of the beast to, to marvel and worship this beast. Now, the next few verses are probably the most confusing in all the book of Revelation, especially if you try to take a literal understanding of the book and you ignore the highly symbolic and spiritual nature of this book. But let me just read them again, and then we'll try and make some sense of these verses. Verse 9, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. So up front, the angel says to John, what's about to come needs wisdom. And I think part of the wisdom that we are called to have here is that you cannot take this literally. The seven heads, so we have a beast here with seven heads. He now tells us that the seven heads of this beast are seven mountains. Now that's a reference, I think, both to a general reference, seven being the number of perfection and a mountain representing authority and power. This is a, a picture of great power and authority. But I think in the context, more specifically refers to Rome because the city of Rome was well known at this time to be called the city of seven mountains. But then we are told that the seven heads are also seven kings, which is a real problem if the literal head is both a literal mountain and a literal king. But it's not a problem if these symbols are all describing the same spiritual reality. You see, the city of Rome, which is clearly in view here, is representative of the worldwide empire of the day. And so it is also representative of all future worldwide empires on the earth. And, and who runs Rome? Well, it's controlled by kings or, or emperors. And the angel says that five have fallen, one is now, and there is one still to come. But the one that comes will remain only a little while. 
Then the angel describes the beast and says that the beast itself is an eighth king, but, but he belongs to the seven, and he will be destroyed. And then he describes the ten horns, and he says they also are kings who will receive power when the beast returns, but only for a short time, for one hour, and they will hand over all their authority to the beast, who we've just been told will be destroyed. Now, as I was struggling through this passage this week, I was, I was struck by the incredible humility of most of the faithful biblical scholars who I studied, who acknowledge that we really cannot be sure what exactly these heads and these horns are referring to. So I'm not even going to try and present all the various options of, of Roman emperors or world rulers over the age of history that people have put forward because every single one of them comes up empty and arbitrary and holds no water when you give it any kind of scrutiny. There are some fantastical lists, but just made up by people who randomly pick people that they think represent these seven uh, kings or emperors or the ten. Instead, I'm going to settle where I think we are meant to settle uh, at this point, which is to understand the bigger picture here in the light of the symbolism of the book so far, that this beast with its seven heads and ten horns is the great agent of the dragon throughout the church age as he acts through kings and rulers and authorities and governments and dictators and presidents to carry out the dragon's bidding. This is not a new picture of the beast. It's, it's just giving us more insight to the same beast we considered in chapter 13. The symbolism that five have passed, one is now and one is to come, I think is simply again in the context of seven, along with the rest of the New Testament, telling us that we are living just before the end. Five have gone, one is now, and there's one to come. We're in the last days. And when the seventh comes, the beast, who is the eighth king, he will be revealed. And when that happens, we know that the end is near. It's imminent. Similarly, the ten kings, I think, is a symbol for what we looked at last week. We saw last week that the, the river Euphrates was dried up, and all the kings of the earth gathered together at that mount of gathering to wage war against God. Here we are told that this eighth, the beast is the eighth king, and there'll be these ten kings who will join with him for a very short season, uh, and then it will be over. Last week we saw this gathering of all the kings to battle against God, and now we are told that the beast who was not, he will arise from the abyss, and with him these ten kings, they have one mind, they hand all their power to the beast, and the scene is set for the most incredible battle in all the world, this battle of Armageddon between good and evil, the dragon and his allies against Jesus and the church. Now let's read verse 14, which follows immediately after what we've read. The beast and these ten kings will gather, and verse 14 says, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. Is that it? Is it really that simple? Absolutely. Isn't it amazing to see that everything this world can muster against Jesus, the greatest battle in all of history, is summarized in five words. The Lamb will conquer them. 
Uh, do you want the juicy version of this great battle with all the details? Turn ahead with me to chapter 20. Spoiler alert for those who don't like spoilers. Um, put your fingers in your ears for the next uh, two minutes. But Revelation chapter 20 verse 7 tells us the details of this battle. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Good, so now you understand everything you need to know about the beast. Um, we've got that sorted. Um, let's move on in the second place this morning to consider mystery number two, uh, the prostitute Babylon. So we come now to a relatively new symbol uh, in the book of Revelation to this prostitute who is seated on many waters, verse 1, who is sitting on the scarlet beast in verse 3, and who we are told in verse 5 that her name is Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Now I say that she's relatively new because we have already account, uh, um, encountered her just briefly in chapter 14, verse 8, and in chapter 16, verse 9. She was just kind of mentioned in passing. And so although she was introduced there, now we are given a much clearer description of who she is, what she's up to, and what her end will be. And so let's start with who she is uh, in verse 18. Who is she? We'll look down to verse 18 of chapter 17. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now we've said before that historic city of Babylon was long gone by this time. It had been destroyed. We are told in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, that the Christians in the New Testament identified Rome as Babylon. And so it's clear that Babylon then is not a literal city, but it is a symbol for a great city of the world, any great city of the world which has dominion over the kings of the world. Now, it's very interesting in this description because up to now, we were told that the dragon, Satan, he gave his authority to the beast to have dominion over all the earth. And we saw that this was a symbol for the state, for kings and rulers and governments. But now in this vision, we are told that the woman who is riding on the back of the beast, she has dominion over the kings of the earth. In other words, the great city of Babylon is actually, at least for this season, more powerful than the kings of this world. She's more powerful than the beast itself. But not only does she have power over kings, look at verse 15. We see that in verse 15, she also has power over all the peoples on the earth. She has power over peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. In other words, the power of the prostitute is pervasive. Now, how is it possible that this woman, 
Remember, this is a, she's a symbol for a great city. How is it possible for her to have power over all the people and even power over the kings, over the rulers of a country? Well, we are told how in verse 2 to 6, where John's vision describes what she's up to. Her power over the kings and nations is described. Let's just read again from verse 1 with this in mind. Look at her power. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls said, Come, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Now we know that the many waters means she's ruling over all people. With whom, verse 2, the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. And with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. Move down to verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and implied mother of the earth's abominations. So now we begin to get a clearer picture of the identity and the activity of this prostitute Babylon. That as a, the great city of the world, she stands for all that is beautiful, all that is tempting, all that is seductive, all that speaks of wealth and, and pleasure and status and royalty. In other words, the prostitute Babylon represents all that is worldly. She is the mother of worldliness. If you know Pilgrim's Progress, she is the queen of Vanity Fair. Now, five times in these verses, <clears throat> excuse me, five times in these verses, and 12 times in chapters 17 to 19, we have the Greek root word porn. The word prostitute in the Greek is porne. And then we have both the verb to commit sexual immorality is porneo, and we have the noun for sexual immorality as pornea. Now, we must remember that this is symbolic language, as I've said. It's not primarily referring here to a literal prostitute who commits literal sexual immorality with literal kings and literal people of the earth. But as with all the symbols in Revelation, the deeper spiritual reality to which the symbol points is always appropriately connected to the symbol itself. And so the spiritual meaning of this symbol of the prostitute is clearly understood from Old Testament passages. Hosea chapter 4, verse 10 to 12. Ezekiel chapter 16 these are not bedtime stories for your children. The language is graphic and it's shocking, but the spiritual truth is clear. It's one of spiritual adultery, which is ultimately idolatry. It's the turning away from God and giving love and worship to anything other than God himself. Spiritual adultery is idolatry. And so broadly speaking then, the, the prostitute Babylon is anything in this world 
things which may even be good in and of themselves, but things which become an idol in our lives, things which cause us to give our love and our affection and our worship to anything else that is not God. So while the language of prostitution and sexual immorality is not meant to be taken literally, the symbol has been most appropriately chosen to describe what it looks like when we turn our love away from God towards the things of this world, when our affections are returned to the things of the earth. Now to make this image vivid, John describes this stunningly beautiful woman. She is clothed and adorned in all the glitter and all the glamour of this world. And she's holding in her hand a golden cup. The idea of a golden cup is that what's inside must be very desirable to drink. Verse 2 led us to believe that this cup was filled with wine. But verse 4 tells us that the reality of her cup's contents is that it was filled with all the abominations and the impurities of her porneia her sexual immorality, her abominations. Not only was she dishing out these abominations to all the inhabitants of the earth to become drunk with her intoxications, but verse 6 tells us that she herself is drunk from the blood of the saints who bore witness to Jesus Christ. Here we see that the persecution and the martyrdom of those who belong to Jesus, it usually comes, persecution leading to death usually comes at the hand of the state, at the hand of those who are in authority and power. But what we see here is that they are doing the bidding of this prostitute because as they refuse to worship the dragon, they are put to death and the prostitute drinks their blood. What a graphic image of this prostitute Babylon and the world we live in. Now how are we meant to understand the application of this vision of John in our day and age? Well, I hope you can see that every generation since John wrote these words, particularly in the context of Rome, every generation since then has been surrounded by the great city of Babylon. We today, in 2022, are living in the midst of our Babylon called Johannesburg. But there's more going on here because with our global interconnectedness via the internet and television and social media, you and I are also virtual citizens of the global city of Babylon. What happens in America no longer stays in America. What happens in China no longer stays in China. We're all part of the same global city of Babylon. And so while I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, I do think we need to acknowledge that in terms of this idea of a, of a worldwide city of Babylon with global influence over nations and kings and peoples, collectively drinking the wine of her sexual immorality and abominations, that the interconnectedness of the world today certainly rings true of the things that John is seeing here in his flash forward. Remember that this prostitute is in bed with the beast. She drives her evil agenda to tempt all the people of the world to, to lust after her seductions and her pleasures 
And all who refuse to drink from her cup, she hands over to the beast to put to death so that she can drink their blood. Honey Ridge Baptist Church, which cup are you drinking from? Just think about this past week. Think about how you've spent your money. Think about how you've spent your time. Think about the things that have occupied your eyes and your ears. Think about the affections of your heart. Are you drinking from the cup of the abominations of worldliness in the hand of the prostitute Babylon? Or have you been drinking deeply from the cup of the living water which only Jesus Christ offers you so that you will never, ever thirst again. So that springs of living water, Jesus says, will well up within you unto eternal life. Do you realize that the greatest threat to us as Christians today, in the civilized Western world at least, is not the threat of militant persecution from the state, No, the greatest threat to us persevering as Christians is the seduction of Babylon. She is all around us. She's in the boardrooms of big business. She's in the hallways of academia. She's in the dorm rooms of our universities. She's in the classrooms of our schools. She's on the sports fields of our teams in the showrooms for the latest cars, in the pages of the latest glamour magazines. She's in the windows of every shop in the shopping malls. She's on the big screen and she's on the little screen. She's in the allure of travel and searching for the next international experience. She's in the consulting rooms of cosmetic surgeons. She's in the music of our culture. She's in the power of our politicians. She's in the praise of our accomplishments in the pro-choice pamphlets of abortion clinics. She's in the rainbow posters of inclusivity. Sadly, she's in the entertainment of our churches. And if we're honest, many times she's in the reflection in the mirror. The prostitute Babylon is pervasive. She's impressive. She's beautiful. She promises you everything your heart desires. Her lips are red. They drip with honey. But her kiss is venomous poison. And we need to close. We cannot do so until we see the purpose for this whole chapter, which is right there in front of us in verse 1. What? Will her end be? The angel said to John, I will show you the great prostitute. Is that what he said? I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute. Verse 7 and 8, why do you marvel at her? Both her and the beast will go down to destruction. Now look with me at verse 16. And the ten horns that you saw 
and the beast. They will hate the prostitute. This is right at the end. They will make her desolate and naked. They will devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. No matter how beautiful, no matter how alluring the temptations and the promises of this world may appear, in the end, evil turns upon itself. It will collapse. The dragon does not care about anything other than destroying Jesus Christ and his church. He's actively pursuing us. And right now, he's pursuing you and me through primarily the prostitute of worldliness. But once she has served her purposes or his purposes, he will discard her and turn on her and she will be destroyed by the beast and his kings. See, no matter how great and powerful the prostitute riding on the scarlet beast may appear today, as the world drinks in all her intoxications and abominations, in the end she will be destroyed as evil devours evil and God's purposes as the righteous judge are vindicated. We saw that last week. So we're going to come back to more of the fall of Babylon in next time, and I think there's a lot more application that we need to work out in terms of our lives living in the midst of Babylon. But can I close by reminding you that this prostitute and her beast have no power over you and I who are faithful to Christ. Please look at verse 14 again. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. What an incredible trio of words to comfort our hearts as we leave here today and we go out into Babylon, to know that we are called and chosen and faithful. You cannot hear those three words and not think of Romans 8 verse 28. And we know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom God foreknew, that's another word for chose. For those whom he chose, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those that he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, the lamb wins. And so do all of us who are with him his chosen and called and faithful people. And so there we have it. We've just had our very own flash forward. It took a little bit longer than two minutes and 37 seconds. But there's a flash forward to a day in our future which none of us can avoid. So will you leave here today in denial, pretending that this is all a fairy tale? Or will you leave here, as we saw last week, shaking your fist at God, refusing to repent as you continue to curse Him? Or will you leave here today trusting in Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, that He will keep you pure in your love and your devotion to Him until He returns? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word again today. We thank you for the incredible relevance of it to us 
in this day and age. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, your word would accomplish your purposes in us, that it would not return to you void. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.